When I was growing up in West Texas, one thing that my mom loved to do and spent a lot of time doing, especially as my brothers and I got older, was garden. And in West Texas, gardening does not come easily, as you might imagine. She chalked off a good portion of our backyard and built a fence and spent a lot of time growing flowers and growing vegetables and uh, making a part of our backyard beautiful. And uh, I'm convinced that the fence was not so much to keep out rabbits or serpents or anything except for her children. She wanted to keep her three boys out of the garden. She wanted it to be a place for her to have respite, a place for her to relax, a place for her to enjoy her life, to enjoy our backyard, to enjoy God's good creation. Whether or not she succeeded in keeping us out of the garden is a story for a different sermon, but the point is my mom loved being in her garden because it made her feel, well, it made her feel fully alive. It made her feel fully human. Gardens might do that for you as well. Being outdoors might do that for you as well. Seeing the beauty of God's creation might make you feel fully alive. Our story this morning places us in a garden. Not just any garden, though. The garden, the original place where God dwelt with men and women, the Garden of Eden. And this morning we find ourselves in the Garden of Eden, And Genesis hones in here on the creation of man and on the purpose for which God made us. And we saw that Genesis 1 is sort of a big picture view of God making the entire universe from nothing. Genesis 2 tells, in many ways, the same story in a different way. It's not contradicting Genesis 1. It's telling the story while honing in, in particular, on the creation of man and on the relationship that God established with men and women at the very beginning. So Genesis 1 is about the sovereign God making and ruling everything, and Genesis 2 is about the relationship that God originally intended to have with each one of us. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning. And here's how I want to summarize. Here's the main idea for you from Genesis chapter 2. God made man, to live with him in perfect fellowship and obedience. That's very simply the point. God made man to live with him in perfect fellowship and obedience. And I want to show you three points as we walk through this story together. First, the goodness of the garden. Second, the keepers of the garden. And third, the trees in the garden. The goodness of the garden, the keepers of the garden, the trees in the garden. So that's what we see in these verses. Let's jump in. First, we see the goodness of the garden. God, in verse 7, creates Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living creature, and God places the man in a garden in Eden. Now, the word there, garden, doesn't just mean the kind of garden my mom had in her backyard when I was growing up. It doesn't just mean the kind of gardens that you possibly think of when you hear that word. When the Old Testament language of Hebrew uses that word garden, it's referring to not just a small patch of real estate where vegetables grow. It's referring to a massive expanse of green, lush, fertile land. When Marianne and I spent some time in Philadelphia, we would often Well, not often as we would like, but a couple of times we would get out of the city and drive to a place south of Philadelphia called Longwood Gardens, which is just an amazingly beautiful place with amazing trees and amazing flowers and amazing plant life. And we would always find ourselves loving that place. I even loved it as a seminary student who liked being inside, indoors with books in a library. I enjoyed being there. 
it makes you feel wonderful. It's, it's captivating. That's the sort of image you should have in your mind when you think about the Garden of Eden. God sets man up in a great situation. And the story reveals three things about the garden. First, the garden was delightful. The word Eden simply means delight. And notice in verse 9, we read that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. So Eden was beautiful. It was immaculate. It was glorious to be in. Second, the garden was useful. So there's beauty in the garden and there's also bounty in the garden. Verse 9 tells us that the plants were pleasant to the sight and they were good for food. Okay, so um, 10 verses, verses 10 through 14 speak about this as well. There's this massive river that flows through Eden, verse 10, and breaks up into four rivers, two of which we know, the Tigris and the Euphrates, the other two, we don't know what those rivers are. And uh, the rivers flowed through these productive lands and fertile lands, and there was gold, and there's delium, and there's onyx stone, etc. We see that in verses 11 and 12. The point is that Eden was a place with tremendous agricultural and industrial potential. So the garden was delightful, and the garden was useful. But thirdly, and most importantly, the garden was sacred. The purpose of Eden was not just for gardening and not just for production. The purpose of Eden primarily was for worship. It was for worship. You see that in chapter 3, after man, mankind sins, verse 8, we read that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the idea behind that is that this was a common occurrence in the garden. Eden was a place of regular communion and fellowship between God and man. You could say that Eden was a garden temple. Eden was the first sanctuary. Eden was holy ground. It was the dwelling place of God. Listen to what the Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein says. Here's what he writes. The original homeland of man might well have been named Emmanuel. God was with man. Man's dwelling place was God's dwelling place. This was the greatest glory of paradise and the supreme and ultimate blessedness of human life. Man did not have to make a long pilgrimage to come to God's dwelling. There was no great wilderness to pass through. No perilous ascent on high or journey down into the depths was necessary to find God. For man was by creation's arrangement, a house guest at home in the house of God. Eden was good. The garden magnified the goodness of God. That's worth you and I remembering and believing together this morning. God is good. He's good to us. He's good to this world that he has made. In the New Testament, James writes that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And even in a world that has fallen, that is broken by sin, God is still good. He's still good to you and to me. God still lavishes incredible blessing upon us. Even if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're not sure if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a recipient of God's goodness. God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, the Bible tells us. And that's worth remembering because we very easily 
forget God's goodness, don't we? You know, I know that in my life, if I had to, uh, if I had to make a pie chart, if I had to make a pie chart of the amount of time my mind occupies itself with the bad and hard things in my life versus the amount of time my mind occupies itself with the good and blessed things in my life, I'm guessing that the pie chart would be like, you know, 80% bad things is what my mind's thinking about, therefore, in some way, blaming God, and maybe 20%, and that's being generous to myself, 20% is good things, thanking God. What about you? Are you grateful to God for his goodness to you? Right now, this morning, I was reading a study this week that actually argued that thankfulness, the act of gratitude, is actually physically good for our brains. It makes us healthier and happier people to demonstrate gratitude. It's good for our souls. It's good for our bodies. And the reason that that's true is that you and I were made to see God's goodness and to thankfully praise him for it. So perhaps one way that we can respond to the hard things in our life is to cultivate thankfulness. I love how uh, Anne Voskamp puts this in her book, 1,000 Gifts. Listen to what she writes. I know there is poor and hideous suffering, and I've seen the hungry and the guns that go to war. I have lived pain, and my life can tell. I only deepen the wound of the world when I neglect to give thanks for early light dappled through leaves and the heavy perfume of wild roses in early July and the song of crickets on humid nights and the rivers that run and the stars that rise and the rain that falls and all the good things that a good God gives. Eden was good. The garden was good. And it shows us that God was and is and will always be good. Second, let's learn about the keepers. The keepers of the garden. So what did God call man and woman to do and to be in their original condition before sin entered the picture? One way that theologians have answered this is by saying that God, here in Eden, enters into a particular kind of relationship with mankind, even at the beginning. And the word for this relationship is covenant. Covenant. From the very beginning, it was God's intent to move towards mankind. To move towards mankind in fellowship, in love, and in friendship. And the name of the covenant that God institutes here with man is traditionally by theologians called the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. And we see this hinted at even in the name used of God in this chapter. If you'll look back through those verses, you'll notice in verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 15, and verse 16, we see the name, the Lord God. Now, in your Bible translations, Lord, L-O-R-D, might be in all caps. That word Lord is a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, which is the name God reveals to us, for example, in Exodus chapter 3. It's God's personal name. The name translated God, G-O-D, in chapter 1 is the word Elohim, Elohim. And in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, when we see Elohim or God, that word is emphasizing God's power as creator. But when we see Yahweh or the Lord, that word is emphasizing God's covenantal relationship with man. So 
Yahweh focuses on God's presence. Elohim focuses on God's power. And here in chapter 2, we see repeatedly the covenant name of God used. So God designs at the very beginning a particular relationship, a friendship with men and women. He calls us to see that he is the Lord. He is the king. And then he gives to us a holy and a noble calling in the world. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 tells us, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things, two verbs here, to work it and to keep it. Those are the two words that define what God calls us to do in this covenantal relationship. They lay out the parameters of man's responsibility in relationship to God. So I want to look at those two words with you. First, God says you are to work the ground, work in the garden. Now that word work, it means everything that humans do to build human culture. Everything that we do to civilize the world is done with one eye towards God. It's done quorum Deo, before the face of God. So this command to work the garden is a more specific way of what God calls us to do in chapter 1. That is to subdue the earth and to have dominion. So man is called to really to extend Eden throughout the world. That's man's job. Man was to make the world which was not yet inhabited and not yet cultivated. You saw that in verse 5. He was to make this world beautiful and industrious. That's what man's job was. It was to work and to produce and to create. Marianne introduced me to a Netflix show. I've just watched a couple of these episodes. Uh, she's watched more than I have, and it's a show called Big Dreams, Small Spaces. Some of you might have seen this show. It's about uh, this British master gardener who goes from one family or couple to another in each episode somewhere in the United Kingdom and helps them create a beautiful space on their property. And most of these places are very small. And, you know, it's the UK, so it's always dreary and cloudy, and it looks kind of, you know, dilapidated. And so this gardener goes in, and they spend the whole episode tearing out, you know, all of the weeds, and tearing out the thistles, and the thorns, and creating a master plan for a garden, and cultivating space. Space that's going to be beautiful. Space that's going to be productive. The, the whole point of the show is how this man helps people make ugly places beautiful. And that's really a picture of everything God has asked of us when he tells us to work. That means, listen, here's what that means. That means that whatever calling you have in the world, whatever calling you have in the world, it is a holy, God-ordained calling. It means that there's no distinction between what some have called sacred callings, like being a pastor or a missionary, and so-called secular callings, like being a teacher or a businessman or a stay-at-home mom. The only exception here is lawyers, of course. It's a very secular job that God does not approve of. No, just kidding. <laughs> Two of our three elders are lawyers, so I had to sneak that one in. Uh, what this really means is that all forms of work are really participation in God's work. The work of the farmer, the work of the physician, the work of the fence builder is all for God's glory. It's all an echo, you see an echo of our original calling to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth, to extend the glory of God throughout the world. 
In fact, so-called secular jobs are actually going to be more permanent than so-called holy jobs. I'm out of a job in heaven. Artists are going to have a job in heaven. Road builders are going to have a job in heaven. They'll be able to do work, but there's going to be no need for evangelism in heaven, so I'm out of a job. So the word work means that we are called to fill and subdue and make ugly things beautiful, to cultivate for God's glory the world that he has made for us. Secondly, God tells us to keep or to tend the garden. That means that man, alongside his or her work, also has a priestly, a priestly role in this world. Now, why do I say that? Here's why. That verb, tend or um, keep, is almost always used in the Old Testament in reference to the work of Old Testament priests at the tabernacle or in the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem. And remember, I said a minute ago that the garden is a sanctuary. The garden is really the first temple. So what is God saying here? What do these ideas teach us? Here's what it means. God is calling man both to work and cultivate the world and to guard and keep watch over the garden. That is, man was in Eden supposed to protect and preserve the holiness of the place. He is tasked with the job of protecting the garden, say, from an impure intruder, like a snake, which we all know, of course, are very impure, right? We'll get to that in a few weeks. Uh, so job, the job of mankind is to be a priest, to be a priest in God's garden temple. Adam is asked by God to give God worship and adoration and to consecrate the garden as one who has seen the glory of God. So at the very beginning, the very beginning, this relationship, this covenant that God established with mankind was one in which we were called to see God as the source and the light of life. And then to joyfully offer him our lives in worship and in adoration as response. Here's what that means. You and I exist to worship God. That is why you were made. Okay? Um, You exist to extend the glory of God throughout your family, throughout your vocation, throughout your pursuit of holiness. You fly airplanes or drones for the glory of God. You teach kindergartners for the glory of God. You do social work for the glory of God. You examine patients and prescribe medicine for the glory of God. Yes, you even prosecute crime and defend clients for the glory of God. We were made to exalt and extend the glory of God in whatever ways God has wired us and led us in our lives. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do in word or deed, do it for what? Anybody know? The glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. And the truth is, the more you align what you are actually doing in your life with the reality that to do it is for God's glory, the more satisfied and pleased you become with your work, with your calling, with your family. So we see that garden is good. We see that God gives Adam and Eve responsibilities to work and to tend the garden. And then lastly, we see the trees. The trees in the garden. 
There's two trees singled out in verse 9. Look there. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're mentioned again in verses 16 and 17 and then again in chapter 3, verse 24. Now, what is the point of this? Here's what the trees are. The trees are signs. The trees are signs that help us to understand the boundaries of the relationship we have with God. The trees are signs that help us understand the terms of the covenant. First, we see the tree of life in verse 9. Now, thinking in terms of the covenant relationship God's making here, the tree of life is a sacrament. It serves a sacramental purpose. The tree of life was a sign and a seal of what God was offering man in their relationship. You see, the tree of life represents eternal life. It represents glorified communion with God forever. Think of it like this. In the tree of life, God is saying to Adam and to Eve, he's saying this, if you will lovingly submit to me as your king, if you will enjoy the good gifts I am giving you, if you will worship me as your Lord, if you will live in friendship and in fellowship with me, I will grant you permanent life forever. And I will see to it that this is always the case. That's what God is saying. If man obeys, he will live forever with God in paradise. So the tree of life was a sacrament, just like the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. The Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal to remind us of the hope that we have in the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus. So we look at the cup. Nice wine glass, by the way. This is new. I'm excited about this. Um, So we look at the cup. It's a grape juice glass. I'm sorry, grape juice glass. And uh, we look at the cup and remember the blood of Jesus shed to forgive our sins. We look at the bread and we remember his body broken so that we might be pardoned. It's a sign to remind us of the promise of God. This tree of life is the same way. It's a sign that was intended to remind Adam and Eve that God promises life to those who will live in submission to his good and loving rule. Okay? So this meant that in the garden, it was possible for man to obey or to disobey. And we know this from the next chapter. God is saying, if you will obey, I will bring you into the rest that I've already entered into forever. So the tree of life represents God's invitation to loving obedience. And it represents the reward of eternal life with him. Second, we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 9, and again in verse 16 and 17. So if the tree of life is a sacrament... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a test. Notice, eating of this tree, verse 16, is the one prohibition. It's the one thing that God tells Adam and Eve that he may not do. Now, why? Why does God prohibit man from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Now, to answer that question, you have to know what knowledge of good and evil means. And trust me, there's been a lot of ink spilt on answering that question. Um, Many solutions have been offered. I think it's pretty clear what it means, though. Here's what it means. The knowledge of good and evil, that phrase, whenever it's used in the Bible, usually refers to God's lordship over everything, to God's right to determine what is right and wrong, to God's right to determine what is just and unjust. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a way of God telling man 
hey, you must realize that you were always a creature. And I'm the creator. The prohibition is not just some arbitrary thing, and this tree of knowledge of good and evil isn't magical. This isn't like Snow White, you know, eating an apple. This is not some magical thing. That's not the way God made the world, unless Middle Earth is real and Lord of the Rings is real. Then we have another discussion. But for this, for this, it's not magic. No wizards here that I know of. God prohibits them from eating because he wants man to always know and to always affirm, to always confess that God is God. He wants man to love him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants man to understand that he is able to know all things and that man is not. That's the test. That's the stipulation of the covenant. That's Adam's responsibility personally, and it was his responsibility as the representative for the rest of the human race, that is, for all of his children, for you and for me. That's why it's called, by the way, the covenant of works. Adam had to obey to receive his reward for himself and for his children. If he obeyed, he was going to have life. But if he disobeyed, what does God say? You will surely die, along with all of his descendants. Of course, we know what happened. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. Man did not keep the terms of the covenant. Man broke the one prohibition that God gave him. They overreached. They overreached. And guess what? We all continue to overreach today. Really, that's what sin is. Sin is our heart's overreach. Sin is the infinite number of ways that each one of us, every hour of every day, long to be the creator and not the creature. Why do we get angry? Why do we slander others? Why do we covet? Why do we lie? It's because we want to be in control, and we're not. We want to be God, and we're not. It's because we don't believe that it is best for us that God rules and that we submit. We believe that it is best if we rule and God submits. We believe the lie of the serpent, that God is not for us, and that it's better to go it alone. And because every single one of us is like our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve, all of us are seen by God as covenant breakers. We have broken the relationship God established. And because that's true, we are all born out of fellowship with God. Because that's true, none of us are by nature God's friends. In fact, we are in rebellion against him and in opposition to him. And because of this, we die. Our spirits die so that we're hardened against God's glory and goodness. And our bodies die. We decay and fade away from this world. That's not what God originally intended. It's a result of our rebellion. It's a result of the overreach of all of our hearts. We all live in spiritual darkness and blindness. We all have hearts of stone that are totally insensitive to the voice of God. And guess what? That will be the case forever. Living apart from God's goodness. Sin brings permanent separation 
from God and from all of God's goodness, it casts us out of Eden. But there's one way back in. God's provided it. The way back in, really, is to see that this is not the only covenant of works in the Bible. God established another relationship with another person. And he set the terms to be the exact same as the terms he gave for Adam. He said, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obey me perfectly. Glorify me in every aspect of your life. Worship and adore me for my goodness and love. See me for who I am. I am Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, your redeemer. And then live a life of glorifying me in everything that you do. God established this covenant really with himself in Jesus. That's why the Bible repeatedly says that Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus does what Adam fails to do. Jesus entered into a covenant with God by entering our world and obeying God in every single way, just like you and I don't do. Jesus did love the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, just like you and I don't do. Jesus promised to worship God truly and submit to him fully. He promised to devote his whole life to God perfectly, and he did it. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed, and Jesus freely gives to you and to me his success before God. That's the gospel. The gospel is that in Adam, we are all failures and rebels, but in Jesus, we are all completely righteous. Not because we've done anything to earn it. No, we're covenant breakers, but because Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of works. Jesus has done what we fail to do, and then he gives us his victory for free. And not only does he give us his victory, he takes our failure. You see, Jesus shows us not just that he's the last Adam, but he also shows us the final tree of life. Really, the tree of life is the tree of death. Jesus died on a tree. Jesus died on a cross. And in his death on the cross, he opens again the access to the tree of life that has always been barred from us because of our sin. So Jesus does what Adam failed to do and does what you and I failed to do. He obeys God perfectly. And then Jesus dies for what we failed to do at the cross. He gives us what he earns, righteousness, and he takes what we earn, unrighteousness. And anyone who trusts that that is true receives again free access to the tree of life receives again free access to fellowship with God. That's why at the very end of the Bible, when John in Revelation is describing heaven, what is it that we see there in the middle of the city? The tree of life. It's a new garden temple city. It's like Eden squared. It's like Eden perfected. And we can all go there simply by trusting that Christ has done what Adam failed to do and what we failed to do. He died on the tree of the cross so that we can have access again to the tree of life. The story is all written out for us, even in these first three chapters of the Bible. The question then becomes, do you believe it? Do you believe it? As we say often here, the Bible reads us more than we read the Bible. The Bible's reading you right now, and it's summoning you to see yourself in the story as a covenant breaker, 
as one who doesn't see God for who he is, as one who wants to sit on God's throne instead of letting God sit on his throne and to run to Jesus in repentance and faith. The good news is there's opportunity for any who do that to come again into God's presence for free. Let's pray.